Welcome to Real Paranormal Activity, the network. Entertainment you'll enjoy. You are listening to an RPA production, where people gather. Ladies and gentlemen, RPA is proud to present Aaron's Horror Show with Aaron Frail. This is Jason Witter, author, illustrator of Tiniest Vampire and Monsters Eating Ice Cream, and you are listening to Aaron's Horror Show. listening to Aaron's Horror Show, and I'm your host, Aaron Frail. We get to read fiction on the show and talk about some movies, books, you name it. If you like what I do here, please consider supporting the show at patreon.com forward slash Aaron Frail. You'll get some books and other cool stuff for your support. Go ahead and also reach out to me at Aaron's Horror Show at gmail.com, Aaron Horror Show on Twitter, or Aaron's Horror Show on Facebook. Thank you so much for listening and enjoy. Welcome to Aaron's Horror Show, and I'm your host, Aaron Frail. We got more Cal's Revenge, part two of Cal's Revenge. To uh, catch you up, they stole a bunch of stuff and found a crate that was destined to go to Makiarnik, the guy that slaughtered Cal's village. And so. Let's see what happens. The crew gathered in a cargo bay around the mystery crate. Granork was irritated because of the weight on the dwarf planet where they had planned to rendezvous once Hayden picked up Cal. Granork wasn't good at waiting and preferred smashing skulls. When the Cytronite failed to show up on time, he wanted to launch an invasion on the Tricor vessel. The cooler head of Maker prevailed, and they convinced Granork to stick around and scan the planet. While they had found no evidence of the whereabouts of the Citronite, they did find scorch marks left by repeated launches from the V-Class fighters. They also found a building near the runway. Granork made quick work of the sole occupant left to defend their hideout. Cal didn't ask what Granork considered quick work. Even though she already knew how Grenork handled most conflict, Maker and Grenork filled the shuttle with as much of the Marauder's loot as they could. Just as the wait was getting a little too long, Hayden sent a ping announcing their arrival. Once the replicator crates were safely in storage and a new cartridge installed in the system, Cal gathered the crew to discuss the mystery crate. Cal discovered pretty early in her life as a pirate to include the crew in all major discussions, especially when the discussion was about loot. Since they were all escaped convicts, it'd be easy for the crew to devolve into prison rules of distrust and struggles for power. They needed to trust each other. There were many ways to die in the cold vacuum of space, and even easier for a crew member to put the others in danger. 
Cal used some of the wisdom of her tribe in her management of the crew. The elders never made decisions without consulting the village. The entire tribe would meet in the center of the village to discuss important issues that affected everyone. Cal hated the discussions growing up. He'd rather explore the woods or play rock ball than listen to people debate over boring topics. Now that she was the leader herself, she understood the value of listening to what people wanted. It could be booby-trapped, Seular said, as he eyed the crate cautiously. I find that scenario highly unlikely, Maker said. The crate is designed for delivery from one terrestrial vessel to another. I find it challenging to conceive of a situation where they'd wish to cause harm to their own ship. Unless it was another assassination attempt. There are four more effective. We should just smash it, open, and be done with this pointless discussion, Granork snarled. Orcandus were twice the size of humans and had a jagged horn on their forehead that seemed to look sharper with their mood, which bordered on fearsome even when they were happy. Cal was taller than humans, and she was the runt of her species. However, even the tallest of her Earth brothers and sisters looked like dwarves compared to Orcandus. I don't know, Hayden said. What, what do you think, Captain? Cal hated it when he called her Captain, and he knew it. She ignored the comment and said, The crate is just a worthless shipping container until we open it. What's inside may have value to someone. What if there's a biological agent inside? What happens if we breathe it when we open that thing? Seelor gulped. Then I will heal you, Hathnol finally spoke up. He had been Cal's cellmate. A giant bug-like creature, minus some appendages, took some getting used to in prison. Hathnol was even more fearsome to behold than Granork. However, unlike Granork, he was probably the one who had the values most like the peaceful ways of her village. She trusted his judgment and often went to him for advice. In addition to secreting some natural healing goo, he was also very good at alien biology, so he fell into the role of ship's doctor. There is only one thing that matters, Hathnol continued. Once we open the crate, we will be walking a path where we can never go back. Right now, the Turisticus are not actively looking for us. They will think we died in the prison riots. Some of the areas of the asteroid mining prison depressurized during their escape. Prisoners and guards alike were sucked into space when an errant explosion damaged the hall. Because they had the wisdom to toss Dr. Fessler's body into the void, there was no reason for the Turisticus to believe that any of them were still alive since no other ships escaped. Once we open that crate, Hathnol addressed the crew, our anonymity comes to an end. Well, hell, Hayden said. If it's important to the UPE, then it's gotta be worth something. Let's go waste some time and open it. Our anonymity will end when some point when we score big enough. Today might as well be that day. The crew murmured their approval. So we're all in agreement, Cal said. You know what I think, Seular said. But if the rest of the crew wants to open it, it was good to know you all. That was about as close to approval from Seular as they would get. The crew all stood, staring at her. Most of them were not used to the communal leadership style she used. Most of the crew had either been given orders or following orders their whole lives. While Cal had the final say in most matters, she encouraged discussions that most of them weren't used to having. 
However, with a little work, she finally got them talking and even got them to voice opinions when they disagreed with her own. The silence of the crew told her that they at least agreed with one thing. They all wanted to know what was inside that crate. All right, then, Cal said. Grenork? He pulled out an Orcandu-sized crowbar from the tool bay. The crate was a solid metal with an electronic lock. Most species would need robotic assistance to pry it open. Maker could have also hacked the computer component, given enough time. However, Granork's brute strength method had its advantages, especially when they all wanted to see what was inside. With a roar, the Orcandu pried the top off and the lid clattered to the ground. They all leaned over to see what was inside. There were many cubes, with eight bars extending from each corner, suspending a tiny piece of technology. In the center of each cube was a chip with a tiny metallic tendrils coming from the middle. On top of all the chips was a data drive. It was an odd choice to include a physical data drive with the tech because most people transfer data through the galactic network. With advancements made possible by quantum entanglement, data was easy to encrypt and instantaneous to transfer regardless of distance across the galaxy. Data drives were archaic. Physical transfer of drives only happened in the criminal world with those who were paranoid about data theft. The Turisticus had the best quantum security in the galaxy. A hacker good enough to enter UPE servers would cost more than the data was worth. The only conclusion that the data on the drive was worth the slow transfer of information via space travel. Not that space travel was very slow, it just wasn't instantaneous with like the galactic network. Most spaceships could travel by creating a field that bent space in the direction the ship wanted to go. Hayden lovingly referred to faster than light travel as warp drive. Cal would have to watch this Star Trek one of these days, as she never would hear the end of it from him if he avoided it for too long. Hayden had to explain that they measured warp in his favorite show as a factor of 1 through 10. The reality was that faster than light travel was measured in parsecs per year. Even though humans had come a long way since the days it took months to travel from Earth to Mars, the Citronites only puttered at a measly speed of 30 parsecs per year and was only safe at 20 p years. By contrast, most of the Touristicu fleet could travel at 70 p years. There was an old pirate legend that one of the most notorious ships could outrun the Touristicu fleet. The captain's name was Jax, and he was on the top of the UPE's most wanted list. However, no one could find him. He simply disappeared. Most claimed that a ship could travel at 100 p years. He simply moved on from one to another region of space, far beyond the grasp of the Touristicu. 100 p years could traverse the galaxy in 306 years. Cal had a hard time believing the rumors because no ship could travel past 72 without disintegrating under the hull stress. Cal believed that if Jax was smart enough to evade the Touristicus, he was also smart enough to retire in style. The crew was locked in a debate about what to do with strange objects in the crate. Granork and Seelar wanted to eject the contents into space. Seelar was worried about it hurting the crew, whereas Granork thought it was worthless. Hayden was trying to make a guess at the street value of UPE tech, and Hathnol remained silent. Other crew members murmured to themselves. Cal turned to Maker and said, I need you to tell me what's going on in that data drive. 
we're not making any decisions until Maker can figure out what we're dealing with. The crew conversation came to a halt as they all reflected the words that she had said. Not wanting to participate in any more idle speculation, Cal nodded to Maker. He scooped up the contents of the crate. There were so many tiny containers for the chips, a normal person would have to use a cart. Maker's current set of arms split into many tendrils, and he hauled the contents back to his science lab. The other crew dispersed. Hathmill turned to Cal after the last crew member left the room. I do recognize the markings on the side of the crate, as I'm sure you do too. I trust that you can discern the difference between what is a benefit to you and what is a benefit to your crew. It's part of the responsibility of being a leader. Hathmill turned and shuffled towards the door. Due to his missing legs, his body dragged on the ground as he walked. The sound of his shifting gait filled the silence that followed. Cal wasn't sure she could discern the difference, though she liked to believe that she would put her crew above herself when the time came. Later that week, Cal walked into the bridge one night when she couldn't sleep. She had a nightmare again. It was the same one over and over. She would be walking through her village. People would wave to her as they would bustle about their tasks. Her light green skin was washed out in the sunlight, unlike her fellow villagers who had more vibrant green skin tone. A boy with long orange hair to his neck and a girl with blue hair to her waist kicked a rock ball towards Cal. She tossed it back into the game. A silver-haired elder smiled and nodded. On the path ahead, she would see her mother, but she wouldn't be smiling and calm like the rest of the village. Makiarnek, in full power armor, held her mom by the throat with one hand and pressed a gun to her mother's head with the other. Her mother screamed and Cal ran to save her. No matter how fast she ran, she could never cross the distance between her and her mother. Cal screamed at the villagers to help. They would all smile and nod like nothing was wrong. She would scream at their impending deaths. They would all go about their business. Right as Cal struggled closer, Makiarnak fired his weapon. Half of her mother's head exploded outward and covered both Makiarnak and Cal with blood. Cal screamed and sprinted the rest of the distance for what seemed like an instant. She knelt beside her mother's lifeless form and looked up at Makiarnak. She rushed towards him and knocked him to the ground. She yanked the tubes protruding from his chest attached to his helmet. She shattered back the two round eyepieces. She pummeled the Turistikyu captain with all her strength. Once Makiarnak's limp form went limp, she opened the armor. Her bloodied face was staring back at her. She woke up after every nightmare in the darkness of her room, and even though the crew insisted that she had the most spacious one, her quarters seemed small. Since there was no immersive arcade gaming platform on the ship to occupy her mind, her best option was to sit on the bridge and watch the stars whiz by while they were at warp speeds. It was comforting to know there were planets out there that were safe from the influence of humans. The Cytronite was a, such a small ship that didn't have a bridge like most of the ships of larger size. It only had four seats, one for a pilot and one for weapons, and sensors were a half a chair length below in the front. Raised on the back, there was a chair for science operations and another for ship operations. Since the ship operation seats was close to the captain's chair, as Cal would get, they had her sit there. Cal sat in the pilot seat. The sensor and weapon seat were removed because Granork preferred to stand, and not 
that he would have a seat made for a human anyway. Finally, Maker sat at the science station when he wasn't in one of the ship's many labs. Cal was at her op station calculating the fuel to speed ratios when she heard a hiss of the door to the bridge. Hayden appeared in his pajamas. Cal thought they looked silly and didn't understand why humans wore them. Her people slept in the same clothing they wore during the day. Negrobodians weren't known for their style. Their clothes were some of the most utilitarian in the galaxy. Clothing designers made a killing by on a working class inspired clothes that were Negromodian design. Because Cal kept it simple, she usually wore a black bodysuit and had a utility belt. The only time she would take off the suit was to refresh the replicator and shower in the evening. The belt was draped on the chair of her quarters at night. Hayden, on the other hand, would waste his replicator supply by picking out a new look every single day. Can't sleep again, Hayden said as he wandered into the pilot's nest. I'm fine. I'm just trying to ensure we have enough Decrin to get to the next port. You know there's a cure for sleeplessness, Aiden gave her a wry smile. You think human males would need sex to survive? The way you want it all the time, she said and turned to her work. <laughs> we don't need it to survive? Hayden said as he punched up his counsel. It was the same charm that made its way into her bed. While the physical pleasure of sex did give her a release from time to time, she didn't want Hayden to think that it was anything more than a purely physical relationship. There was too much going on in her life to worry about another person, so they would meet in the halls at night and off-duty on occasion. However, he would never be allowed to stay. She would always show him the door. The first night they had sex was very similar to this one. Cal couldn't sleep, so she was performing ship maintenance tasks on the bridge, and Hayden wandered to his station. They began talking, and the next thing Cal knew, she had her first romantic experience. Unlike human females, who usually experience pain in their first time, she experienced pleasure. Cal was quite knowledgeable about the act. Because her people were so utilitarian, she learned about procreation with all of her peers during learning hours. It was a normal part of life. She didn't know that it was loaded with so much other meeting until her encounter with a human. Humans seemed to need to have all sorts of hang-ups, imply all sorts of meaning, and have all these strange mating rituals. It wasn't just a purely physical act for them, but some sort of complicated process where emotions got involved. Of course, there were emotions of all for Cal, too. She did feel something for Hayden, but she wasn't sure that of what it was and was in no rush to define it, whereas Hayden seemed to want nothing more than define it. He would ask her questions like, What are we to each other? Or, What are we doing? Cal would always answer with a realistic answer. We're lying next to each other in bed at the moment. As much as Hayden seemed to need to have a definition of their relationship, Cal couldn't provide one, so they settled for late-night encounters and hallway meetings. Tonight, however, Cal could not give him what he wanted. Hayden seemed to be able to read her better than she could read herself sometimes, and he knew when to back off. He was soon lost in his task at his station. The crate weighed heavily on Cal's mind, more so than the nightmare. She had grown accustomed to shielding herself from nightmares and stealing her nerves. However, the crate was a new development. It was obviously intended for Makiarnek and his crew. There were enough chips to outfit a crew and a few to spare. 
However, she wasn't sure what they were used for yet. There were speculations like super soldier upgrades, interfaces for their armor, or even more outlandish ones like chips for their guns that turned them into thinking machines. <laughs> the crew even inserted their ideas that they had seen in the movies. It was not worth speculating until Maker gave them a clear answer. As to the nature of the devices, the movie theories, as Maker would call them when he rejected a hypothesis from the crew, came from Hayden's movie night. He made sure the crew always had leisure time, and he always had ideas how to fill up that night. At first, Cal agreed with Granork that movies were a waste of time, and so was leisure. Slowly, she began to see the appeal. The crew seemed to work more efficiently when they had time to unwind. It was nice to get caught up in somebody else's story and forget your own, even if it was only for a brief moment. Human storytelling was pretty short and concise for the most part. Unlike some species, humans get most of their stories in the two-hour range. The Lothlanaria Loyan would perform plays that would last for 36 hours before their first break. They had to invent an entirely new playhouses for off-worlders. When they finished calculating the fuel ratios, she punched in oxygen numbers. She reconfigured to conserve oxygen even though they didn't need to. They had more oxygen than fuel tanks due to her replicator heist. Maker and Granork took the oxygen reserves from the dwelling on the dwarf planet in addition to other various items as well as a few coin chips. While physical money was a relic of the past, coin chips were a digital currency that was much like this ancient earth currency called Bitcoin. Coin chips were little cards with microchips that stored the value of cash on them. They could be refilled, but most people would just throw them out and purchase a new one from the vast coin chip ATM networks across the world. The coin chip vendor skimmed a little off the top when refilling or creating new coin chips. It was a scoundrel and a thief favorite because vendors converted currency from all known worlds. Each card was completely anonymous. It was one of the few currencies that could be both traded in Tarisku-controlled stations and Shusharian collective stations. After she was done with oxygen ratios, she pulled up the navigation charts. They were taking a desolate route to an out-of-the-way station. The route on her nav screen was a nonsensical one through a vast empty regions of space zigzagging and crisscrossing on itself. The Touristicus would no doubt be watching for vessels leaving the Tricor vicinity. Even a neutral ship like hers would be searched on major shipping lanes. Their one saving grace was that the Tricor sensors had not registered their ship. Each day they traveled through the void without an encounter with another vessel put them more at ease. Cal knew they couldn't fully relax until they got to the space station to refuel. Her destination was a Vibin fuel depot that was neutral with the UPE. However, neutral meant that the Touristicus had no reason to take over their homeworld. Vibins were a trader race with limited technology. They bought and sold human decrand on their many stations peppered throughout the galaxy, so it was an amicable relationship. However, should the Vibins ever dispute with a United Plants of Earth, they would be annihilated within a day or forced to join the UPE. Even though humans dominated the UPE by a vast majority, there were other races in the UPE too. The UPE expanded in several ways. The first was a matter of claim. Humans always had this need to expand. If they found 
an uninhabited world, hospitable life, they claim it, colonize it, and call it their own. Some were independent worlds, some were official UPE settlements, and others were independents with a resource too valuable to stay independent very long, which led to the other ways the UPE grew, through conquest. Whether it was military, economic, or technological, if they could buy the world, they would. If they couldn't buy it, they would make the world a slave to their technology, give them something only humans could provide, thus encouraging them to join the UPE. Military conquest always seemed to come in the form of trumped-up reasons to take over the territory. The UPE would never invade outright. They always spin a story about why the people of UPE should vote for military action. Her homeworld of Negromoto was a prime example of the UP's best storytelling. The humans claim that the Shusharian collective had enslaved her people when the real threat was humanity. The humans claim that the Shusharian collective had enslaved her people when the reality was that humans and Shusharian ships showed up at almost the same time and fighting for the world that wasn't their own to fight for. According to her mother and other villagers who lived at the time of the war, Negromoto didn't have any dealings with aliens. There are few scientists from both the Shusharian and human governments, but they studied nature, geology, and other things about the world. The scientists were peaceful and life didn't change all that much until a geologist discovered why their world seemed to have much higher gravity than worlds similar in size. Even though most humans believe they were saving Negromodians from the Shusharians, the reality was that the human government created a propaganda campaign to make the public feel they were doing the right thing. From the Turisticu perspective, they thought they were saving Negromoto and preserving the way of life of the local people because it's what their leaders wanted them to believe. That's why even though Hayden was a soldier and a member of the feared Turisticu army, most of the crew accepted him because he had stood up for the crimes against her people. And that's, of course, what put him into prison in the first place. And from what Hayden said of a man named Sarge, it sounded like he stood up for his belief system too. However, Cal didn't know what to think about Sarge. When Sarge had first betrayed her, he was the first human she had ever met. She wanted desperately to forgive him because he was like the father she never had. Now that she knew she was half-human, the analogy of her father she never had was truer than she could imagine. Her time in the woods with Sarge building a cabin and teaching him the survival skills of her planet were good memories. He had come when she needed a friend. However, the fact of the matter was that he took advantage of her ignorance and gave her the tracking device that had been surgically implanted in his body. It was a device that he knew full well would bring the brutal Turisticu Enforcer Squad to tear apart her village. He might have not known that Mackie Arnek was a madman who had slaughtered the entire village when his search for Sarge came up to a dead end, but the truth was evident much later. After she had broken free from prison and had time to think and reflect, Cal came to the conclusion that her heart wanted to make. Sarge had a hand in the death of her people. While she did not hate him like she hated Mackie Arnek, she did feel a deep sense of betrayal. For a person to show her so much kindness and teach her so much about the outside world, she feared the inevitable confrontation with the Sarge more so than Makyarnak. At least with Makyarnak, it was simple. She would kill him. With Sarge, she had no idea what she'd do if they crossed paths again. One thing was for sure, she couldn't go to her homeworld anytime soon. It was the most protected planet in the Turisticu Empire, and she was on the human's shit list. At least, that's what Hayden called it. 
and depending on Maker's research, she might move up the human shit list. It was no use worrying until Maker gave her an answer. She turned off her display, and without a word to Hayden, she left the bridge and went to bed. Maker beckoned Cal to the corner of Lab 2. The Citronite was equipped with three state-of-the-art labs. Lab 1 was a medical biology laboratory with various equipments designed for xenobiology study. Lab 2 was for physics and other physical sciences like chemistry and geology. The third involved many view screens and a domed roof. It was the astrophysics lab designed for analyzing all phenomena of a space-faring science vessel could want. She turned off her display, and without a word to Hayden, she left the bridge and went to bed. Alright, well that is it. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, so, you know, thank you so much for listening to, uh, uh, Cal's, uh, Revenge. We'll have more for you next time. And, uh, yeah, the next time you get a crate full of, uh, strange alien technology, uh, maybe it's worth some money. Anyways, thank you so much. Have a good night.